All right. Several days ago, there was a war started by the Islamo-Nazis against the country or land of Israel. And this, has, this subject has been on the minds of many people since the last several days. And because of it, we're going to address this subject and answer some common questions that arise in relation to the nation of Israel and the Christian, Christian's perspective or view of them, the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And so we will address a few questions and go to a few scriptures with brief explanations as to what the, the answer would be to these questions. One question is, the first question, number one, what is the biblical view of the Jews? What is the biblical view of the Jews? And when the question is asked, we have to keep in mind that the biblical view of the Jews has to do, one, with the physical people, and then those who spiritually believe the gospel that God has preached to them. So the Bible will call them Israel or Jews like that. So we have to always understand that there are two, at least two distinct bodies or two distinct groups. That is, those who are physically known as Jews and those who are spiritually known as Jews. That is always in the Bible. And not only the physical, but physical has to do with those who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 sons of Jacob. That means that Ishmael and his descendants are excluded, and it also means that Esau and his descendants are excluded from this term that we use, or the Bible uses, Jew. That's excluded. Also, the word itself, the word Jew, comes, it's a very abbreviated form, and coming from first Hebrew and Aramaic into Greek and Latin, and then into European languages, and especially when these biblical words come into the French language and English language, there is a, a what's known as linguistic corruption that occurs. And so when we say Jew, it has no similarity or very little similarity to the way that the Hebrew word would be to name those people. And so we shouldn't be confused. It has to do with when words are interpreted or translated from language to language, there is inevitably a deviation from the way it is originally said in the original language. So the, the word in the original language would be Yehudi or Yehud, and Yehud, like that, uh, or Yehuda. And in those ways, it has come into English as Jew, simply Jew. And remember, between Hebrew and English, it has gone through several other languages before it comes into English as the word Jew. And so if we're going to be precise, the word has to do with only the tribe of Judah. In some contexts, it only has to do with the tribe of Judah. However, commonly, and we'll see biblically speaking, in later biblical period, it came to be a term used for anybody who is from Israel, anybody who is a descendant of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
It can be used specifically of only the Judah Heights, but also generally. And over time, and biblically speaking, predominantly it's used of everyone who is from the 12 tribes of Israel. All right? Um, that would be Jew to speak of them, generally speaking, male and female. And then to speak of a Jewish man, it would be Jew. And to speak of a Jewish woman, it would be Jewess. J-E-W-E-S-S. Okay, that's a summary of what's in the Bible. Next question. What is the difference between the nation Israel and the Jewish people, if any? What is the difference between the nation Israel and the Jewish people, if any? And this question, if, if the question is intended to ask, is the nation of Israel today comprised in their ethnicity the ancient people in the Bible? If, is that the case? And the answer to that question is yes. The nation of Israel today, they are men and women who come from the 12 tribes of Israel, from the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel. They come from them. That it should be an indisputable assertion, but some people will doubt it and they will say, no, 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 that the current people in the land of Israel, they are not Jewish. Actually, black Africans are the real Jews, or there's a cult that's in the United States that's known as the Black Hebrew Israelite. The Black Hebrew Israelites. And they claim that they are the true Jewish people. So there are her heresies and aberrations, but none of those are true. It's simply only that the current nation is comprised pre predominantly of those men and women who are descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in some cases, they can trace their lineage. In other cases, they cannot trace their lineage. But if there is DNA research conducted, it is provable that they do have a, a Jewish heritage or a Hebrew heritage. Which also brings us to another question. When we say the word Hebrew... What are we speaking about? Well, when we use the word, we're speaking about both the ethnicity of the individual, but also the language of the individual. The first time that the scripture uses the term Hebrew is in Genesis 14, 13. Genesis 14, 13, where it says, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Abram the Hebrew. That is the first occurrence of the word. And it is likely that this word is derived from one of the ancestors of Abram or Abraham. And that we can show from Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, verse 21. Genesis 10, 21. And also to Shem, the father of all the children of ever, or ever. 
He, Shem, is the father of all the children of ever. And this word or name ever, it has the same consonants in the Hebrew language, the same consonants as the word Hebrew. Though it doesn't appear that way in the translation or transliteration, it is the the same consonantal structure in the word. We also notice that it's in verse 25, 1025 of Genesis, and two sons were born to ever. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And so there... The reason why Ever and Peleg are mentioned in 10.25 has to do with later in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, notice in verses 16 and 17, or 16 to 19. 11.16, this is a list, a genealogy going from Shem to Abraham, from Shem to Abraham. And notice in verse 16, 11, 16, And Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber and Peleg, the reason that he was noted in chapter 10 has to do with the fact that he is the son of Eber. And if we continue reading in chapter 11, notice we come to verse twenty. 6, 1126, and Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So that means that Abraham comes from his lineage, which goes to Peleg, Ever, and all the way back to Shem, and Shem was one of the sons of Noah. All right, so that is the root or etymology, most likely, of this name. So the word is used of the Hebrew language, but it's also used of the Hebrew people. And sometimes in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is known as the Hebrew people. And even in the New Testament, we have a book, the book of Hebrews, which is addressed to the Hebrew people. That is, those who are descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel, who are also synonymously called the Hebrews or the Hebrew people. Okay? That's the terminology. Then, number three, question number three. Are the Jews still the people of God? Are the Jews still the people of God? And when we ask this question, we have to keep in mind that usually the question when it's asking the Jews, it has to do with ethnic Israel or national Israel. That is, as an ethnic group, as a people group, as a tribe or a collection of tribes, is ethnic Israel still the people of God? Or we might ask, is national Israel? Because today, since 1948, the people of the Jews or the Jewish individuals have collected themselves and incorporated themselves into a nation since 1948 in the land of Canaan, also in the Bible called the land of Israel. They have 
been incorporated as a nation. So is national Israel still the people of God? Yes or no? Remember, when we're asking questions and using terminology, we have to be very careful, especially when it's a hot topic. We have to be very careful about what we mean by these. So whenever the question is asked, we have to make sure that the questioner and the answerer are both on the same page in terms of terminology. Well, from the previous explanation of the previous questions, when we say the Jews, are they still the people of God? In what sense do we mean it? Do we mean, are the physical people still considered the people of God? Or are they considered the people of God no matter what their behavior is? So that the spiritual factor is excluded that God always considers them his people. Is that the case or not? You see, when we ask the question, we have to make a distinction. Are we talking about the physical people or are we talking about the spiritual people? Does it matter what the physical people believe or not? Does it matter what they believe or not? And so... To answer the question, this is the answer, and then we will look at some scriptures for support. The basic answer is, yes, the Jews are still the people of God, but only in the biblical sense, only the way the Bible means it. And what does the Bible mean? They are considered the people of God because God He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through Moses, he adopted them out of Egypt as a nation. He delivered his word and covenants to them, and many other things. He delivered those to them. He did not deliver those privileges to any other nation. In that sense, they are still the people of God. And we will show that even the New Testament looks at it that way. In that sense, they are still the people of God. However, when we say people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament does not mean, unless the context is explaining it, it does not mean that they are automatically in God's favor and automatically saved no matter what they believe or no matter how they live. The Bible nowhere teaches that. It nowhere teaches that about any individual or any nation that there is automatic salvation simply because God has favored them. There is no such thing in the Bible as automatic salvation, unconditional salvation. There is nothing like that. And I'm using those words automatic and unconditional in this current context. The Bible does not teach it whatsoever. So let's explore this third question a little bit more with some scriptures on why we, when we ask, are they still the people of God? Well, how do you mean it? And what does the Bible mean by that? Okay. First, we go to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, 4 to 6. 19, 4. 
You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among, among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. This is at Mount Sinai. God has already adopted them. He has already chosen them and delivered them out of the land of Egypt. So he's already considered them his people in that sense, in that restricted sense. But notice in 19.4-6, he says, If you obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. So there is a more significant, a deeper, a spiritual, an eternal sense in which the Bible, even in the Old Testament, and even Moses to the sons of Israel, actually taught them, you are the people of God in a specific sense. God delivered you. God showed you favor. God is fulfilling promises to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is giving his word to you. God is giving his covenant to you. God is giving his tabernacle and the sacrificial system to you. He's giving the festivals to you. He's giving many things to you, right? But that doesn't mean that you are automatically in God's favor and going to heaven. That's why he says, you will prove that you truly belong to me if you obey me. If you do not obey me, then you will prove to be worthless people, worthy of condemnation. Though you have, in a sense, a specific sense, the privilege of being called the people of God, I'm not going to consider you my people. If I see rebellion in you, you will not be considered my people. We continue, pick this up in the book of Deuteronomy. And note, we're talking about what Moses taught the people when God adopted them under Moses. He clarified and we're just looking at a couple of examples of clarification. He told them explicitly in no uncertain terms so that no man of Israel or we, we Gentiles, there should be no misunderstanding about any of this. If we're reading and studying the Bible properly and carefully, there should be no misunderstanding. Here again, Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 6. Are they his people or are they not his people, even in the time of Moses? 32.5. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. According to verse 5, are they his children? Are they his people? Yes or no? No. Because he's talking about all the rebellious ones among them, right? He's saying, no, you're not. But we'll look at verse 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Look at verse 6. It says that God is their father. But in verse 5, God says, they're not my children. So is he their father or is he not their father? In the sense that he adopted them out of Egypt to deliver them from slavery 
and to deliver his word and many other benefits to them. In that sense, he's their father. But in terms of spiritual life, eternal life, gospel uh, life and godliness in the people, they don't have it. That's why he disowns them as not truly being his people, not spiritually being his people, not internally and eternally being his people because they are corrupt. They are defective. And again, verse 19, 32, 19. 32, 19. And the Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Verse 6, he says that he's their father. And verse 19, he says he is their, or they are his sons and daughters. In a sense, in a specific sense, they are his sons and daughters. However, he disowns his own sons and daughters. He spurns them. And, and that has to do with their provocation, their rebellion, their disobedience. They did not keep his covenant, so they're not his people. This continues into the New Testament. And the reason we must come to the New Testament to answer this question as well, not only showing that it should be very clear on the basis of the Old Testament, but some people, on the basis of the first coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and on the basis of the Jewish nation or the nation of Israel rejecting Christ as their, uh, Jesus Christ as their Christ, their Messiah, rejecting him, Therefore, God has completely and entirely disowned them so that there is no salvation for any one of them, nor are they to be considered the people of God in any sense. That is one position. Well, another position will say, well, in the Old Testament, they were always his people and it didn't matter how they behaved. And the same in the New Testament, it doesn't matter how they behave, they are still his people and salvation belongs to them. They're all saved. That's another position that's erroneous. Both of those positions are erroneous, even based on the New Testament. Why? Let's see examples in the book of Romans. Romans is dedicated to clarifying this point because it has to do with whether we correctly understand salvation. And the biggest example of understanding it is the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. So chapter 3, Romans 3. Remember, Romans 3 is after the incarnation. Romans 3 is after the death and resurrection of Christ. Romans 3 is after the ascension of Christ. And Romans 3 is after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So that those who want to make a distinction and say, no, no, everything changed after they rejected Israel. Uh, after Israel rejected Christ, everything changed. No, everything did not change. Notice Romans 3, verse 1. 3, 1 and 2. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And he's not just talking and asking about Old Testament Judaism. He's not just talking about the Jews or Israel in the Old Testament. He's talking about his current day. 
He's saying, what is the advantage of the Jew? Do they still have an advantage? And he says, yes, great in every respect. They still have an advantage. They still have the favor of God in some sense. But is it in a salvific sense? Are they guaranteed salvation? No, but in the sense that they receive the oracles of God. Like we said before, they receive the word of God. They receive the covenants of God and other benefits. They received those benefits and they still have those benefits. If we're going to find a scholar of the the Old Testament, we're not going to find that scholar or commonly that scholar who knows what he's talking about, generally speaking. Not in reference to salvation in Jesus Christ, but generally speaking, you're not going to find it among the Mohammedans or Muslims of the world. You're not going to find it among the atheists of the world. You're not going to find it among the Hindus of the world or the Buddhists of the world. They don't care. They don't want to care. And even if they did approach the subject, they would not have an ounce of objectivity, usually speaking, typically speaking. So they're not entrusted with the oracles of God, and you cannot go to them and consult them. Will you teach me the Hebrew language? It's generally not going to be that way. It's going to be, you have to go to a Jew. You have to go to a Hebrew and and say and ask, what are your scriptures? Give me a copy of your scriptures. I don't know Hebrew and I don't know Aramaic, but teach me Hebrew and Aramaic. Even the Protestant reformers had to learn in the medieval period, late medieval period in the 1500s, in the 14 and 1500s, when there was a revival of learning Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, when there was a revival, many of the Protestants and the Catholics had to go to the Jews to learn Hebrew and Aramaic. They had to go to them to learn. So they have this great benefit of being entrusted with the oracles of God. Of course, it's impotent and powerless unless they actually believe what's there. We're not talking about that right now. We're talking about the fact that they are favored. Romans 9. Romans 9 continues this thought. Romans 9.1. Romans 9.1 to 5. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Here we have the lengthiest list the longest list of the benefits that the people of Israel received. And he's talking about their current condition is still that way. Paul is saying their current condition is still that way, and this is what grieves him so much, that they have so much truth at their fingertips that very few of them actually believe the truth that is on their fingertips. And he wishes that he could be accursed for their sake. It has to be, it is, that they do have a current 
benefit or favor with God. Then let's also show in Romans chapter 11, Romans 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is most expansive in helping us understand the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and how it is that any Jew or any Gentile actually is saved. That's Romans 9, 10, and 11. And Romans 11 is essentially explaining the remnant of God. The remnant. That is, that God chooses some Jews and some Gentiles to become one people. God chooses some Jews and some Gentiles to become one olive tree. He uses or saves some Jews and some Gentiles to become his family or be in his family, to be his true sons and daughters. Okay? That's the point of Romans 11. So Romans 11, verse 1, he, the apostle says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. The point he's addressing is, there are those, and even today there are those, who say, God has 100% rejected all Jewish people since they rejected the coming of Christ. Since they rejected their own king, their own Messiah, their own Christ, they rejected him, Therefore, God has nothing to do and has no favor whatsoever with any of the ethnic Jews, any of the people of Israel. He has nothing to do with them. He despises them, in fact, and he is constantly punishing them and condemning them and showing the world how miserable they are and how they ought to be despised, neglected, spat upon, everything. That is the way some people look at the Jews. But the apostle says, he says that may it never be. It's not the case. And he is a post-Pentecostal example of salvation. The apostle himself in Acts chapter 9. The day of Pentecost was Acts chapter 2. If God was done saving people in the ethnicity of Israel, then why is Paul saved? And we'll see that there are more examples in the book of Acts, more than just Paul, a Jew, who were saved. So they did not have automatic salvation. They needed to believe in Christ, and Paul eventually did, Acts chapter 9. Furthermore, our attitude, the Gentilic attitude toward the Jews, we find this confronted in 11... Romans eleven seventeen, Romans eleven seventeen to twenty four, Romans eleven seventeen. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off 
so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, and you stand only by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? You see the distinction he's making here? Whenever he says you, he's addressing the Gentiles in the Roman church. Whenever he says they or these or there, he's talking about the Jews. And he's telling the Gentiles, you better understand that by God's grace, you were grafted in. You were wild and you were grafted in to the domestic natural branch of the olive tree. You were a wild olive tree. Now you were grafted in, brought into the domestic olive tree, natural olive tree. And so we should not be conceited, verse 20, but fear. And notice, in reference to the current physical Jews, ethnic Israel or national Israel, the Hebrew people, the Hebrew race, however we describe them, in reference to those physical people, he says in 23, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. He can do it, and he does do it. Over the centuries, over the millennia, 2,000 years, he has saved some over the years who were Jews, and they became Christians. That is, Jewish in their religion, they retained their Jewish ethnicity, and then the Jewish religion and beliefs, they rejected, they repented of those, and they believed in Christ. They became saved because they believed in Christ. They would be then the true people of God. Like I said, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and most specifically, if you are note-taking, it would be Romans 9, 6 to eleven thirty two. From Romans 9, 6 to eleven thirty two, this is an expansive explanation as to this relationship. Are Jews automatically saved? No. They must believe in Christ. But they still can be saved. Therefore, keep a humble attitude toward them and preach the gospel to them. That's the point. So we're answering the question, are the Jews still the people of God? They still have the word of God, but they do not have the salvation of God unless they believe in Christ. 
So they are the people of God in that they have the word of God, but they're not the people of God in that they don't have the salvation of God because they don't believe in Christ. Now, on this matter of continuance, let me add another brief point in reference to this. So related to it, we'll call it point number four. Point number four. Remember that Jerusalem in the Old Testament, in several places, in Isaiah and Nehemiah, Jerusalem is called the holy city. The holy city. After the coming of Christ, after the first coming of Christ, and after the Jewish rejection of Christ, is it still called the holy city? Or is it now called the unholy city because they rejected Christ? Is it still called holy city or is it not called the holy city, Jerusalem, because they rejected Christ? First, before they rejected Christ, we have Matthew 4, Matthew 4, verse 5, 4, 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and he stood him on the pinnacle of the temple. Matthew, remember, Matthew is, does, does not coin this term, but this term is from the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah, it's in Daniel, it's in Nehemiah. For example, Nehemiah 11, verse 1. Nehemiah 11, 1 calls Jerusalem the holy city. Okay, but someone might say, well, that's before they crucified Christ. That's before they rejected and condemned our Lord and Savior. Well, after they condemned him, notice what Matthew calls Jerusalem. We turn to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. And in Matthew 27, 33, 33 and following, they crucify him. And it says in verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So 2750, Christ is dead. Okay? Now, notice 2753, verse 53. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. After his resurrection, which means it's not immediately that these other saints rose from the dead but after Jesus rose from the dead, then they rose from the dead and they entered the holy city. That means we're talking about days after Jesus rose from the dead, they rose and the city is still called the holy city. It is not abandoned or called the unholy city so that we cannot call it holy in any sense. Further, our last example is Revelation 11. Revelation 11, verse 2. Revelation 11, 2. And leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. The nations will tread or trample upon the holy city for 42 months. This is, however we interpret the book of Revelation, 
it's still something to occur after Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and after the day of Pentecost. It's still an event after, however we interpret Revelation 11. And therefore, Jerusalem is still known as the holy city. All right, so these are a few of the questions that come up. Next time we will continue. There's a few more questions to answer on this subject. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.